0: Hi there, I'm Ken Krause, and I'm one of the voices of our feisty little Snap Sessions podcast. Together with interviewer, writer, and commentator Doug Nunn and techmeister Marshall Brown, we produce the mix of politics, comedy, and interviews that is Snap Sessions. Maintaining the Good Ship SS Snap Sessions isn't free. Expenses include our website hosting, Zoom Pro account, transcription services for interviews, and other things that keep our podcast snapping. If you enjoy our quirky show, we'd like to ask you to become one of our Snap supporters. We've even added some membership levels to make it easier for you to join our Snap family through our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions. To help us produce our monthly antidote to the media madness, you can join our support team as a baby snapper for just one dollar a month for only three dollars a month you can become a snip snapper we also have our existing levels of support through Patreon with the Mighty Mini Snapper at $5 a month, the Simple Snapper at $10 a month, the Beefy Big Snapper at $20 a month, and for $35 a month, you can become an exalted Snap Maximus. Maximus. And for those of you wishing to make a one-time gift to our snappy cause, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee account at buymeacoffee.com forward slash snap sessions. You can contribute as much as you are able to whenever you can. All our Snap supporters will receive credit on our website, thesnapsessions.com. For those who contribute at the upper levels, there are special rewards, such as credit on the podcast, early access to the episodes, unedited transcripts of the interviews, access to special music, and more surprises. Links to all support levels are on our website at thesnapsessions.com and please know that we appreciate any support you can give. And we appreciate you listening to our snap offerings. We are grateful to you as listeners and hope you will help Us keep making snap sessions a part of your auditory input. Now on with the show.
1: Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover Colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, musician and inventor Gene Parsons.
0: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. In a world where a genetically modified cop thought he was too big for the law, only one reporter was willing to bring him down to size. A story of pastry and politics, of sweet treats and cheesy consequences, Snap Sessions presents the story of... Copzilla!
1: An apartment in Donut Town. A ceiling fan lazily turns. We see a messy bed below where a cartoon donut, Gil Glazy, rises. Next to him, his sultry girlfriend, Sugar Dough, sleeps dreamily. Gil walks across the sun-streaked room to a window as he pulls on his pants.
2: Just another rancid afternoon in the greasy city. Seems like there's always something wrong in our little pastry paradise.
0: In the street down below, two cartoony donut sedans crash head on. The sugary occupants climb out and immediately begin shouting at each other. A cop car pulls up, sirens blaring.
2: maybe it's my perspective i've been a reporter for so long i didn't think i had any choice but to be a cynic i'm gil glazy i run the city desk at the daily deep fry and i've seen all the misery we see gil
1: working at the daily deep fry his hat brim pushed up as he types away at his desk on the other side of the newsroom donuts argue cajole and shove each other the editor comes roaring out of his office I can't print this baloney! You guys write like a bunch of
0: biscuits! Back at his apartment window, Gil pulls on his shirt and wipes the sweat from his brow. Across the room, gorgeous Sugar Dough lounges asleep
2: on the bed. Thank God for my main squeeze. Sugar Dough. She was built like a French twist. I would have liked another roll with her on the wax paper, but I had investigating to do. Gil
1: finishes tying his tie and heads out the door as Sugar rolls over. Getting his car, he takes to the street, and the glare of Gil's headlights cut through the early dusk
2: light. I climbed into my Winchell sedan and drove through the Lower Yeast side. The poverty was incredible. Tough to maintain your integrity down there.
1: As he drives along, we catch scenes of Donut Town's urban life. He passes a crowd of maple bars and old fashioned donuts on a street corner. Sup, bro? Got a problem
3: with you? Sup. Who you looking at like
1: that, bro? bro who you looking at? He pulls up to a stoplight, and two luscious and heavily made up cake donut floozies step up to his window.
3: Come on, honey. Give me a chance, and I'll suck the custard right out of you.
2: Thanks. But I'd like that about as much as I'd like being thrown back in the fryer. He pulls away and drives
0: by a group of degenerate donuts in an alley.
2: Crime. Substance abuse. There's guys in the buttermilk neighborhoods who live and die for drugs. Guys shooting up yeast and snorting bacon powder. Anything to get a rise out of life. Uh. Gil
0: pulls by the Jelly Roll Blues Club. The music breaks Gil's depression as he thinks of last night with Sugar Dough. Last night, Gil and Sugar Doe jitterbugged in the middle of a crowd of dancing donuts. Behind them in the throng stood a dapperly dressed but
2: shady-looking eclair. Last night at the Jelly Roll with Sugar, I could have sworn I saw that eclair, the head of Bear Claw Security. What was he doing there? I'm heading over to the factory to find out. The memory of the Jelly Roll Blues
1: Club fades as Gil pulls into the abandoned parking lot of the Bear Claw Security Agency, killing his lights. A large fence blocks access to the building, and floodlights are everywhere.
2: I've been chasing this story for weeks. Seems like Claw has been working on some secret population control experiments, working on ways to keep the riffraff and the sugar and glaze neighborhoods at bay. As Gil sneaks around the building,
1: he imagines what's going on on the inside, picturing white-coated researchers mixing chemicals, while the mysterious and dapperly dressed eclair looks on. His thoughts are broken when he notices a security guard walk by.
2: Gil pulls back into the shadows. Dangerous work when you're an investigative reporter. I've covered cases of donuts found dunked in the river. It's not a pretty sight.
0: Gil pictures a riverside crime scene where police pull soggy donuts from the river. Gil shakes his head at the thought and then sneaks up to a rear entrance
2: and begins trying to jimmy the lock. You see, I didn't want Donut Town to go up in smoke like that disaster in Terry Clare last month.
1: The Terry Clare disaster happened when a donut vat exploded. sending dozens of beret French twists flying through the air. Back at the entrance, Gil cracks the lock and then edges his way through the door.
2: Bingo! There was something mighty fishy here. Connections with the mayor and his rich friends up in Eclair Heights and the Cheese Danish Hills.
1: Gil pictures rich donuts in a beautiful sports car as a debutante in white tennis shorts throws her racket in the back and hops in. He sees Mayor Kroler looking on proudly with his jutting jaw until finally his daydream disappears and Gil is walking among enormous vats of bubbling hot oil.
0: Suddenly, Gil stumbles upon a greasy vat and notes a sign.
2: Top secret biological weapons research. What the baker's dozen?
0: Gil leans forward for a closer look when suddenly a hand grabs him from behind. Gil quickly turns to belt his pursuer but pulls back when he sees who she is. Sugar, what the heck are you doing here? I thought you were still sleeping.
3: Not if I know you're chasing a big story. You never know what,
1: a who might end up in the society
0: column. Their reunion is quickly interrupted by the gurgling of a vat marked Top Secret.
1: Oil splatters to the floor and the tank shakes. Gill and Sugar lurch back and forth, and then Sugar falls to the ground and Gill falls back between the vats. As Gil tries to pull himself up, he looks up to see a pair of giant, shiny shoes, then continues looking past enormous blue trousers, a humongous belt buckle, and across a huge blue shirt to the chubby, hungry face of the enormous... Copzilla! Gil stumbles backwards. He is suddenly grabbed from the side by the security guard, who is oblivious to the monster. Sugar slips and slides on the oily floor as Gil struggles with the excessively earnest security guard. From above, Copzilla notices the struggle, leans over and grabs the guard. The man is lifted higher and higher toward Cobzilla's face until the monster stuffs the security guard in his mouth. Gil and Sugar stare in horror. Sugar begins slipping again as Cobzilla leans over for her. Gil and Sugar lurch back and forth. Sugar! Sugar screams as Cobzilla lifts her up, <coughs> examines her, and then stuffs her into his shirt pocket. He looks around for Gil, who scurries behind another vat. Before Cobzilla can give chase, he is distracted by an enormous styrofoam cup of coffee.
0: Cobzilla stands to his full height, smashing through the roof with the building falling away. Copzilla smashes his way out of the Bear Claw security building toward the nearby neighborhoods. He looks down at various donuts moving out of their houses, looking up from their jobs, pulling their cars over to see the towering Copzilla above them. Suddenly, the gawking crowd's amazement is broken when a huge chubby hand reaches down and scoops up dozens of them. Copzilla dumps them in his giant cup of coffee and lifts them towards his mammoth mouth.
1: Horrified hordes of donuts disappear into Copzilla's mouth as they are chomped in mass. Donut military vehicles pull up. A well-decorated officer with spreckles on his epaulettes is looking through binoculars as his jeep screeches to a stop. Let's see what this big copper is made of. Eat spreckles, Porky! A loud volley of high-caliber spreckles and sugar bullets bounces off the face and body of Copzilla. He drops the glazed twist he was chomping and leans toward the jeeps, opening his mouth wider to absorb the bombardment. Suddenly, he lurches forward and grabs the officer, licks his sprinkled epaulettes, and shoves the soldier into his mouth. <laughs> Down below,
0: Gil forces his way through the crowds of running civilians and retreating donut soldiers. He looks up just in time to see Sugar dough screaming until Copzilla's laugh drowns her out. <coughs>
1: At a press conference at Donut Town City Hall, confusion reigns as noisy reporters shout
3: questions.
1: (laughs) A panel of scientists and military men are gathered around Mayor Kruller, including renowned scientist Dr. Ronaldo Biscotti. As far as we know, he may be 100 feet tall. That's over 300 cinnamon rolls laid end to end.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's fair to say we are dealing with the fabled Copzilla. What is this Copzilla? That's impossible! Surely that's a myth! We've got General Friedrich Doman
1: here. Uh, General Doman, what can you tell us about this horrifying situation? As far as we can tell... The monster has destroyed most of the Glaze, Sugar and Maple Bar districts. We have reason to believe he will sink the Bismarck sector next.
0: Any chance for uh, reinforcements?
1: I'm afraid not. Communications with Bagelberg are cut off. And I'm sorry to say, our weapons are useless.
0: On a view screen above the press conference, Copzilla is seen smashing his way through the Powdered Donut neighborhood. The powder dust is so bad it obscures the monster. Suddenly, Cobzilla rubs his eyes and pulls Sugar Dough out of
2: his pocket. Oh, who the heck is that? That, ladies and gentlemen, is my girlfriend Sugar Dough.
1: Not Sugar Dough. Gossip columnist and wannabe starlet.
0: Damn straight. On the big view screen above the crowd, Copzilla strokes Sugar Doe's hair as the mighty Kong once did to Fayre, and then licks her like a Popsicle. <laughs> The assembled throng is riveted with shock and revulsion.
2: Until the love of cream horn wrapped on a Napoleon. Think! Have any of you clowns thought about what might attract that big palooka away from Donut Town? Maybe he eats something other than donuts.
1: I've a it. Maybe we can allure him away with a something other than a donut.
2: Oh, shut your cake hole. I think I've got an idea.
1: Suddenly the chaos becomes complete.
2: Quiet.
1: The landscape is nothing but smoke, desolation, and piles of rubble. Exhausted and despondent donuts pick through the pieces. In the distant background, Copzilla stomps through the rubble of Donut Town. Copzilla roams freely, smashing down the occasional helicopters, or grabbing them and stuffing them in his mouth.
2: Too bad it takes time to build a secret weapon. Plenty of time for Cobzilla to digest innocent donuts and torture sugar dough. Cobzilla
1: dunks sugar dough's flailing legs into a styrofoam cup and then
2: licks them. Meanwhile, Mayor Kruller had surrounded Eclair Heights and the Cheese Danish Hills with his crack vegan Brand Muffin Brigade. The only outfit Copzilla wouldn't touch. Up in the
0: Eclair Heights, we see Brand Muffins holding rifles in front of a country club, while the mayor and his cronies tee off. Copzilla is far
2: away in the distance. Good news for the Heights, not so good for the Flatlands. The injustice. Someday I'll make the mayor's cookie crumble.
0: The next day, the sun rose on a desolated donut town with Copzilla rampaging in the suburbs. He sits on a half-crushed building in the jelly roll section, nursing his seemingly bottomless cup of coffee. Around him, donuts continue to flee, some running amid outcrops of rubble. Meanwhile, various Jeeps, tanks, and other armored vehicles spew an endlessly ineffective stream of exploding spreckles and sugar bullets.
1: Abruptly, we hear the sounds of Monday night football announcers. We've got two evenly matched teams playing their finest football. A conference title is at stake here, folks. Uh-huh. Suddenly, Copzilla stands to his full height, swats away an ineffectual pastry airplane. and stares at an immense balloon sports bar. It lies just outside the city limits and has a large neon sign reading, Murphy's Sports Bar. Hot wings, nachos, big screen Monday night football.
2: A shot in the dark? Maybe. But I thought it was the only chance to lure Cobzilla away from the poor people of Donut Town. Gil strides
1: through the rubble as donuts flee all around him. An open topped convertible limo, occupied by glamorously rich custard donuts, tries to honk its way through the crowd. Move along, muffiny
0: rabble. From above, Cobzilla notices the delicious occupants. On a bluff above the city, military brass watched the scene with binoculars.
1: Damn, we've got to distract him. Order a pretzel flyby. Yes, sir. Order pretzel
3: flyby, sir.
0: A donut airplane towing an enormous pretzel fears towards Copsilla's head.
1: You chomped my wife, you enormous bastard. This one's for Shirley! The pilot dives toward Copzilla's head and then releases the pretzel, which whistles down towards its target. Copzilla follows the pretzel and begins plodding toward it, shaking the earth and quivering the balloon sports bar with every step. Gil follows behind in his Winchell sedan, wind in his face. Gil's eyes widen as Copzilla enters the bar. The pursuing planes and helicopters veer off.
0: Copzilla enters the giant balloon sports bar where massive bowls of pretzels and corn chips sit awaiting him. Beers of many nations line the wall along with team pennants. A gurgling pot of nacho cheese sits on the counter. Copzilla
2: plunges his huge paw into the bowl of chips. Perfect. We have him just where we want him. Now if he'll only step on ground zero. Looking down from the top of the inside of the giant sports bar, we
0: see an X marked in the middle of a target circle. In his lust to stuff himself, Godzilla dances around it, consistently missing the X.
1: Above, we notice an enormous cauldron of hot nacho cheese. It bubbles, boils, and spews extremely hot orangey liquid. The collected military brass tensely await the outcome. We close in on the glint of General Doman's binoculars. Steady? Steady? Hold it! Damn, he's still not quite there! Down below, Gil is perched nervously in his Winchell sedan. He looks up at Sugar Doe, dazed in Copzilla's shirt pocket. If I don't do it, nobody will.
0: <clears throat> Gil zooms into the sports bar, heading straight for Copzilla's huge, shiny shoes. Mayor Crawler and General Doman suddenly noted What's that idiot doing? the mayor and general staff's faces contort as we look back and forth between them and Gil in the speeding
1: sedan. Suddenly as Copzilla stuffs yet another glob of corn chips into his mouth, Gil's little Winchell sedan crashes straight into Copzilla's giant shiny black shoe. Copzilla stumbles backwards until he stands straight over the X-Spot. Release, Nacho Cheese! Yes, sir! Release, Nacho Cheese, sir!
0: The hand of a donut soldier presses a red button and from above, the bubbling cauldron of Nacho Cheese tips. Gears crank noisily and it starts to tilt. The immense pot of bubbling orange goop pours down on Copzilla. As Copzilla's hefty head looks upward with an expectant smile, it is met by tons of hot Nacho Goop landing with a direct hit. Zilla doesn't have time to react as the melted cheese dip wells over him, covering him with ten tons of blazing hot velveta. His muffled screams are quickly drowned out and a small mountain of giant corn chips he's been holding in his hand tumble away, drifting downward.
1: Suddenly we notice Sugar Dough jumping from Copzilla's lapel pocket and flying downwards toward what seems a certain death. <coughs> Sugar Dough miraculously lands on one of those enormous corn chips, floats down, and softly comes to rest on a pile of huge pretzels. Pandemonium breaks out at military HQ as generals and politicians slap each other's backs. Mayor Kruller runs up and hugs his commanding officer, who looks on with a bittersweet smile.
0: Uh, General Dillman, I can't thank you enough. Well, you just got me reelected.
1: <laughs> Around the city, we witness various scenes of happiness. Glazed sugar and old-fashioned donuts stand up in the rubble, cheering wildly.
0: In fashionable Leclerc Heights, debutantes and country club hotshots clink cocktail glasses in
1: celebration. Superb job by the defense forces. I'll miss the big fellow. He did some marvelous urban renewal work.
0: Back at the giant sports bar, Copzilla's last attempts at struggle are futile, as nacho cheese solidifies him in place. Suddenly, all attention is concentrated on a person struggling out of the gloopy wreckage. It is Sugar who rises with great difficulty. As she stumbles forward, a horde of news vans and military vehicles pull up. Reporters push microphones in her face, while an overly ambitious wannabe agent helps her to her feet. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, Miss
1: Sugar will have no comment. Sugar pushes him out of the way as flashbulbs explode. Oh, yes I do.
2: I want to write my memoirs. I want to start a film based on my memoirs.
3: I want my own talk show. I want my immediate empire based on my talk show. I want
1: Sugar Dough so continues babbling on, while in the background we see Orange's I mean, cheese-covered okay, gill I mean, slowly I've, I've and those, with extraordinary oh, effort make his oh, way out of the plastic oh,
2: nacho oh, goop
1: unnoticed. Oh, Jesus
2: Crisco, Lord Almighty. There'll never be justice in the greasy city.
0: Months later, at the Donut Town Multiplex Cinema, we witness the gala opening of Sugar's new movie, Copzilla. The marquee above dazzles the community with its giant letters, most especially starring Sugar Doe. We notice a crowd of fashionable donut glitterati at the opening.
2: Well, Sugar got her wish. She's the biggest confection in Donut Town. Now the other gossip colonists are asking her questions.
1: We see Gil walk by a playground where Donut children play. Below an enormous orange statue of Copzilla, we see the big statue is the center of a huge amusement park. On a reviewing stand in the center of the amusement park, General Doman and his staff are being rewarded spreckles and other shiny cake decoration medals by Mayor Cruella. Eclair, that shady-looking bear claw executive we last saw back at the Blues Club, is standing there next to Mayor (sighs) Cruella.
2: Everything's back to normal now. Nobody but me seems to be asking why Bear Claw Security was developing a monster humanoid policeman hell bent on destruction in the first place. We see a
0: shiny, rebuilt, and highly secure Bear Claw factory. In the surrounding neighborhoods, desperate ordinary donuts pick up rubble and hammer boards across broken windows.
2: wrote an exposé for the Daily Deep Fry where I proved the monster was financed by a mysterious group with an address in Eclair Heights. Guess what? My lousy editor wouldn't print it.
0: Gil looks through the editor's door back at the Daily Deep Fry and notices the editor surrounded by shady types, including Eclair. The door closes and we follow Gil walking
2: away with his hat brim pushed up. Honestly, I don't think Donut Society will ever change. Everybody's out for themselves, just like sugar dough. This town's got a collective hardening of the arteries. What else do you expect from a bunch of donuts? We follow
1: Gil around the corner into the new neighborhood, where the architecture is different. We see little bagels playing in the streets, while bagel shopkeepers tend to their storefronts.
2: had enough. I moved to Bagelberg, where the citizens are baked, not deep fried. I'm working for an alternative paper these days. whole wheat.
1: At the offices of the whole wheat we see groovy pastries working in a newsroom with macrame, plants, and progressive political posters covering every available space. Gil exits the office and heads down the street where he is met by Babette. A croissant with bright red lipstick and a
2: beret. And get this, I'm dating a cute little croissant. Sure, Babette's kind of flaky. At least she cares about something besides herself.
1: Gil and Babette stroll happily up the street with Babette's flakes falling off as they head into the distance.
2: I found it's important to believe in something. So, I guess you can't call me a real cynic. Cause there's some things in life that still get a rise out of me. (laughs) Even in the big Crisco.
0: Narration by Doug Nunn and Ken Krause. Featuring Dan Sullivan as Gil Glazy and Christine Samus as Sugar Dough. Additional voices by Doug, Christine, and Ken. Copzilla was written by Doug Nunn. Sound production and design by Ken Krause. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.
1: We're here with Gene Parsons. Uh, This is Snap Session Interview. We finally get a chance to talk to Gene, and um, we're real excited about it. Great to have you with us,
4: Gene. Well, it's it's an honor and a pleasure, and... It's uh, going to be wonderful to get a chance to talk with you, Doug.
1: Yeah. I had read, I, you know, I, I started to do research, and I, I feel kind of guilty about, like, gee, I wonder if they know I'm, I'm doing research. It's kind of a behind-the-back thing here. But at the same time, it makes sense. And I saw, when I was first uh, asking you about the interview, you said you'd just gotten back from the desert. And I thought, gee, I wonder what that means. And it turns out, I think you were raised down in the desert, weren't you?
4: Pretty much, yeah. Tell us
1: about your um, your desert rat upbringing down
4: there. Well, my dad was the original desert rat. He, uh, he and my grandma moved out from Kentucky to Los Angeles for a couple of years when he was a kid. And then when he was in his, I guess he just turned 20 and he and my grandma moved out to the desert, which was really pretty in the outback back in those days. And mm-hmm. uh, she had bought a, a five-acre piece. It was uh, sight unseen. Mm-hmm. And they lived in a tent for three years uh-huh. uh, while he uh, learned how to cowboy and work on Model Ts and stuff. Wow. And then uh, they homesteaded 160 acres, one of the last homesteaders in that territory. Yeah. yeah. I was born in L.A. and when my parents split up, I— as a little guy, I, I spent uh, the school year with my mom in Los Angeles and then the summers with my dad. And then when I was 11, I moved out to the desert full time. And that's, uh, is it called Marengo Valley? Well, Morongo Valley is, is part of that high desert area uh-huh. that's uh, right around Joshua Tree National yeah. Park. Right, yeah. It's uh, quite a bit different than the low desert area around Palm Springs and Indio and mm-hmm. all those terrible places.
1: Yeah. So, I mean— I get the feeling that that's more of the wild kind of—also, the, the desert, as you get further up, it's kind of—I um, mean, it's, it's, it's completely different than it is low. I mean, it's still hot. Tell us about that.
4: Well, it actually, it's, uh, it is very much different. You're right in that. There's uh, Joshua trees, and there's—where um, uh, the ranch is is about 4,600 feet elevation in the valley, wow. and, and it's mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by uh, BLM— Wilderness at uh-huh. this point, mm-hmm. and there's uh, cottonwood trees and uh, pinion pine and just a, a lot of stuff growing there, at least there used to be The, the climate change has yeah. taken its effect on that area, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but it's still quite beautiful, too built up now, although back around where the ranch is is still in the outback. I
1: also read your dad in some ways, your dad was a cowboy
4: and he was my dad was he was a lot of things he he was actually an olympic athlete although he couldn't afford to go into the uh, really into it but he was quite he was did the h bars and the and the rings and uh and high dive and all that sort of stuff and then he became quite a good wrangler had to and ran with the Trying to remember the name was it the Stacy brothers? A couple of different families that ran cattle and horses there, and he learned to wrangle, could do all the rope tricks and all that sort of stuff. Did he wrestle them? Did he wrestle
1: cows down and that kind of stuff? I don't
4: know. I never saw him do that, but I huh. imagine he probably had to. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I was figuring combining gymnastics background with you know being an athlete and, and handling horses, you might have actually done. He might have actually done something
4: there. Probably did. Yeah. yeah okay.
1: Oh, he's
4: curious about he that. He used to intrigue us with the rope tricks. Yeah, yeah.
1: Did you have <laughs> brothers and sisters? Uh, I've got ride?
4: two brothers and one sister. Where are you in the... Uh, I'm iron. the oldest. Oh, yeah, that's yep. great. Yeah. Not, not a pretty picture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Were you an easy-to-get-along-with brother? No. <laughs> <laughs> what made you tough?
4: <laughs> well, I had uh, two um, special-needs brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a little difficult growing up with that for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. But we made it. And my sister and I are very close. We, mm-hmm. we get along really well. And, but no, I I don't think I was too bad to get along with.
1: Yeah, you, you aren't now. So that must have been something. Oh, you don't, don't know me.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah. Um, now, were you always uh, were you a musician as a young man? Did you learn music in school or did you learn from your uh, family?
4: My mom was a classical pianist and uh, uh she was quite good and she always wanted me to play the piano and tried to teach me to l- read music which i rebelled against mm-hmm. but i was drawn to string instruments and so uh you know i started out with ukulele and then she got me a guitar and mm-hmm. and, uh, and then my dad finally got me a banjo and so i started out with string instruments at a pretty young age and i, I never Found out that my dad could play guitar until I was in my 30s. He picked up my guitar and played Old Man River. Hmm. And I said, Dad, I didn't know you could play guitar. And he says, well, son, there's a lot you don't know about me, (laughs) your old dad here. And and I found out that he had played the barn dances and whatnot back when. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful, especially did you ever learn to play piano? I gotta ask. Me? Mm-hmm. I learned to play one song on the piano, uh-huh. and a "Mercy, Mercy," and that's all I can play on the piano, and it has to be in C. Uh Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: right. I was just curious because with a classical mom uh, piano player, uh, you know, and your your musical, you know, uh, capabilities, it seemed like you might have learned that
4: too. No, I I never got. I don't know why uh, I messed around with a piano, but I never. Uh, was diligent enough to actually learn how to play the doggone thing. And mm-hmm. uh, what was the first band you were in? I read of one called the
1: Castaways, I think, or something like that. But yeah,
4: the first band that I was involved with was was the Castaways, and that's a kind of an odd story. I um, I was working at the Dalton Tank Factory in the desert, welding up steel tanks, huh. manufacturing steel tanks. And um my friend Fuller Johnson and I would uh, drive down to Hollywood on our days off and go into the coffee houses and go look around in the music stores and and poke around and there was one music store down there that had a a beautiful Earl Scruggs model five-string banjo in there and I had a SS Stewart banjo but th- this Scruggs banjo was beautiful and I'd go in and I'd play it and it, they had records and they had guitars and banjos and and uh, they knew I couldn't afford to buy it, but they let me play. And one day I was in playing that banjo, and uh, there were three guys came in Gib Gilbo and his band, the Castaways. And they heard me playing. and said, Hey, you, you play pretty good. He said, uh, Are you in the union? And I said, No. He said, Well, I said, You want to do a recording session? And I, I said, I've never done one before. He said, Well, you know, Tap Hartley l- Act, you know, you can get by with one. Mm-hmm. Uh, And you get paid. And so off we went and did a recording session with Lee Hazelwood, of all people. Oh, wow. The Lee Hazelwood who later did uh, Nancy
1: Sinatra songs.
4: Yep. Same one and the same. And after that, I figured that was a one-shot deal. And I went back to my tank factory, welding up tanks out in the desert. And two weeks later, I came home and my dad and I were batching. And dad says, hey, this guy Gib Gilbo called. Uh, He wants you to go on the road. And I I said, on the road, goodness. So I call up Gib, and Gib says, "Uh, Gene, he said, "Uh, would you like to go on the road with us and and play? He said, how much money are you making at the Dalton Tank Factory? And I I told him, he said, well, you'd make twice as much, and we have an apartment rented for you in Burbank. I said, really? So I quit my job at Dalton, arrived with my banjo, and said, oh, I forgot to tell you. said, you won't be playing so much banjo, you'll be our bass player. And I said, I don't know how to play bass. And he says, oh, anyone can play the banjo, can play the bass, and we have a bass for you. So that was the beginning of my so-called professional career. And I was with that band for about a year and a half, all over Nevada mostly, and uh, oh, Navy bases. and you know, we played at a lot of casinos in, in mm-hmm. Elko, Nevada, and Searchlight, Nevada, and Hawthorne, Nevada. and You played every
1: hot place in Nevada, and you moved from place to place. And there are a lot of military bases out there, too.
4: Well, and in California as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: in California. Mm-hmm. I recall being down there. Tracy and I played an Air Force Base down there just off the road from L.A. to Vegas. There's uh, some big Air Force Base. Maybe you played it, too.
4: Oh, uh, I hadn't played that one, but I know where it is. Yeah, you
1: know? I'm trying to remember the town. Uh, was
4: it uh, Lancaster?
1: Uh, someplace out there. Well, I'll come back to it later. I know, but anyway, I remember we played a non-commissioned officers' club. We were making—I was being irreverent and uh, you know, sort of doing military jokes, stuff like that. And I had afterwards this massive discussion with all these sergeants, and they were terrific. They were smart. They were well-read. They, you know, they. They went after me. We had a good laugh, though. I, I really enjoyed that,
4: and that was out in the middle of the desert. I wonder if you could still have that kind of a conversation today in today's <laughs> climate. I wonder too, boy.
1: <laughs> so I, um, you also it seems like so you've been playing with Gib Gilbo, and you, uh, you're playing bass with Gib, and you had been uh, seen as the potential banjo player, and then you you got involved with uh, Clarence White, looks like.
4: What happened was, there's a little bit of stuff in between. Uh, Gib Gilbo was from Opelousas, Louisiana. He was a Cajun fiddle player, a good one. And after about a year and a half, the group uh, castaways broke up, and Gib went back to Opelousas. He wanted to be a tugboat captain. That was his aspiration. And I went back to the desert and went to work in an automotive machine shop, And was playing bass in Palm Springs and Twenty Nine Palms on the weekends. For about a year, year and a half, I bought a house, got married, had a child, and I get a phone call from Gib Gilbo. Hey Gene, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working in a machine shop here. And he says, how much money are you making? <laughs> and I, he said, well, how would you like to make twice as much? I'm, I'm not in Opelousas anymore. I'm over here just about 150 miles from you over in Palmdale. And we're playing at a, a club called the Jack of Diamonds. We're playing seven nights a week in a double, double set of sets on uh, Sunday. And uh, twice as much. And we've got a house over here that we could rent for you. And I said, well, I just bought a house, you know, and, and you know, I've got a kid. I mean, really? And he says, twice as much. So I gave my notice, sold my house in two weeks, drove to Palmdale, arrived with my bass, and I walk up to the Jack of Diamonds, and Gib meets me at the door and says, oh, I forgot to tell you, you're our drummer. <laughs> and <laughs> I, said, you, yeah, I said, you little bastard. <laughs> You know, and he said, well, we bought you a set of drums. I hope you like the color blue. They're inside there. And I said, Gib, I don't know how to play drums. <laughs> he says, they're all drunk in there anyway. They won't know the difference. This is it's a kind of a, you know, earn as you learn situation for you. And so I played in that club for three years, seven nights a week with a double set of shows on Sunday. And uh, I sort of learned how to play the drums. I guess so. Three <laughs> nights. You know, I I read that, um,
1: uh, I read a book about, um, see, Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to learn something really well, and he talks about the Beatles playing in Hamburg, how the Beatles played, you know, seven nights a week, and over over and over and over again, months after months after months. And he he claims that's the way way you reach a level
4: of competence, and it strikes me that You were forced to be a drummer. I was forced to be a drummer. That's it, Doug. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then you asked the question about Clarence White. Right. So we were doing a recording session. and, And I was a fan of Clarence's when he was in the Kentucky Colonels. I'd never met him. And we were doing a session with Clarence White. And he was just learning to play the electric guitar. He even still used a capo on the electric guitar. And we did this session. I was going, holy mackerel, this guy can play guitar wow. And he was getting out of bluegrass because there was no money. He had a kid. He was trying to make enough money to live. Tired of, you know, sleeping in the back of the the van and said, would you like to play with us at the Jack of Diamonds? And uh, he said, sure. Clarence came and played with us. And we we moved to another club called the Nashville West in El Monte. And we played there for about a year, seven nights a week still. And it was really quite a wonderful music scene back in those days. And Clarence was learning the electric guitar really fast. And so that's how I met Clarence. And so from this Nashville West and Clarence
1: um, situation, you end up working with Clarence on a regular basis. Yeah. And then there's a certain point when Clarence is approached by the birds to, uh to join up. Fill us in on that well
4: one. he had actually recorded with the birds a bunch uh on some of their previous records and uh, when the sweetheart of the rodeo came out and they had the steel guitar stuff on there uh and i had just put the string bender on clarence's guitar we had done that that's another story but we're going to talk about the string <laughs> bender momentarily because that's revolutionary so, so he he could um he could do the steel guitar licks and uh so, they, they wanted him to go with the group. And he came to the, to the band and said, Do you think I should do it or not? And we all said, Are you kidding? Go. But I don't want to leave you guys, you know. And he said, Leave us. Go. So he did. And uh, uh, not too long after that, they needed a drummer. And so Clarence was um, instrumental in getting me in on that. So I did an audition and they hired me.
1: And that was 68. Uh, or something like 67. That. 67. So then you joined with the Birds with, with Clarence White, and the Birds had been through a number of different changes by then, I guess, because they had started out sort of a electrified folk band or something, maybe 64 ish or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, there's still the original members, except for Crosby was gone, right? And shortly after I joined, uh, Chris Hillman. Uh, went with Graham Parsons and formed the Flying Burrito Brothers. And we got a, another guy, John York, to play bass. And John lasted for about a year or so. And then we got Skip Batten, which ended up being a long-term
1: mm-hmm. relationship. They didn't force you to be bass player, too. be drums. You, you'd be the one-man rhythm section.
4: Fortunately, no. They mm-hmm. did not do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now,
1: you're, you're being a drummer for the birds, and they also, uh, around that era, uh, this is just after Sweetheart of the Rodeo, I think, they also hit stride when the Easy Rider uh, album comes out. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember going to the movies, uh, I think I was uh, just before my senior year of high school, that movie came out. And, of course, I was blown out. I bought the album. And I have got that uh, album where you're one of the four heads of the birds. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, I think it's the best of birds uh, album. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I loved all that stuff. That whole era uh, with, with you and stuff. You must have
4: been working up a storm uh, in we, those times. We were. We storm. were on the road. That's my dog, Tazzy May. Uh, apparently, there's somebody at the gate. but um. Cameo appearance. Quiet, Tazzy. Taz, that's enough. Yeah. Um, where were we? We were talking about... I got, I got run, run over team. by my train of thought. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Yeah. I was just talking about you must have been busy when because that was a time of kind of a
4: resurgence of major fame for the birds and a lot of gigging and stuff. We were. We were gigging. A lot, a whole lot. We were mostly on the East Coast, Midwest, and some on the uh, in Canada and Europe. And I have to tell you that the picture on the front of that Easy Rider album—that's yeah. my dad. Really? That's my dad in his 1928 Harley Davidson. I, they, oh the art goodness. department kind of dolled up his face a little bit so they wouldn't have to pay royalties. You uh-huh, know, they yeah. anyway. It's that's I've got the original pictures hanging right up there. I'll be dying. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, I, I was a huge fan. And I, uh, you know, like I said, uh, that era, I, I became a big Bird's fan.
4: And I had been... Well, Doug, that doesn't make you a bad person.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you sort of had a country music background, but you were also, you know, kind of, you know, a variety of Contemporary rock and roll kind of stuff
4: too. I was never really into rock and roll. I was mm-hmm. more into folk and bluegrass. I mean, mm-hmm. I was raised on the Weavers and and uh, Pete Seeger and and uh, Cisco Houston and Huddy Ledbetter and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff my mom, you know, introduced me to. And that was, and then when I heard Earl Scruggs, I went, Oh yeah. That's what I want to do, mm-hmm. play that banjo like that. So you
1: were playing drums for the birds, and you, uh, your deep heart sort of thing was to be, uh, was to be doing uh, bluegrass and folk music too.
4: Honestly, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, I enjoyed playing the drums, and I enjoy rock and roll, and I enjoy mm-hmm. jazz, mm-hmm. Uh, listening to it. I can't play jazz really. But, but no, that, that's where my heart is, is uh, bluegrass, folk, and, and country, old country.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And at this point, I'm just curious, uh, you know, here you are playing drums for, you know, big shot touring band, uh, international recognition. Did you be, were you hankering to be playing banjo and all of that more often than doing drums?
4: Oh, I definitely wanted to be playing the banjo and I had started playing the pedal steel too. And that was really, how should I say, that's a, a rabbit hole that if you go down, you never come out, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I was enjoying playing the drums, especially with Clarence, because Clarence was so rhythmic with his playing, mm-hmm. and so we worked off of each other, and and Skip too. But so it was fun playing. I, I had yeah. fun playing the drums. Yeah,
1: yeah. And what led you away? From,
4: uh, sooner or later, you you left the birds and you became a burrito brother, right? I did. The manager of the birds, Eddie Tickner, and who was also my manager, gave me a call one time up here. And said, Gene, you know, he said, the the Burrito Brothers, since Graham died and everything, they no longer exist. But if I had a band called the Burrito Brothers right now, I could book it. And I could get you a CBS contract. Can you put together uh, a reformation of the Burritos? So I called Sneaky Pete, who was a friend. You
1: got to tell me who Sneaky Pete is. When I was reading biographical
4: stuff, I said, I got to know more about Sneaky Pete. Well, Sneaky Pete was a... Phenomenal pedal steel guitar player. Phenomenal and unique. He played a tuning that nobody plays. He played an old eight-string Fender 400 pedal steel that he he must have got when he was a kid. And he also worked with Art Clokey and did the Gumby cartoons. He oh, was hey. an animator and did all those ads on TV with all the claymation stuff. Yeah. He, he was just a, 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 a real character. Where was I? Oh, so I called Sneaky and I said... Sneaky, would you like to, you know, reform the group? And he says, yeah, sure. So, okay. And then Chris Etheridge was living in Kompji. Hmm. And I, I was friends with him and had recorded with him. And I said, Chris, how about you? You were an original member. You, Yeah, sure. He wanted to do it. I called Gib. Gib and I were actually considered to be part of the burritos when they were forming back when. And Gib said, yeah, you bet. And then Joel Scott Hill from Canned Heat lived up here then. And we were friends. And he knew all the songs and was a great lead singer and a good guitar player, and uh, so we we formed reformed the the Flying Burrito Brothers got a CBS recording contract and went on the road. Uh-huh. How long were the the revisited uh, Flying Burritos uh, group? There? Well, that group lasted about three years when uh, Chris dropped out of the group and we got. Skip Batten to play bass. And then that continued on for another couple, two, three years. So uh, I would say six years. Uh-huh. Now, you,
1: I had uh, asked you before we started the interview, I mentioned that I moved up to Mendocino in the summer of 77. Mm-hmm. And you said you had been here since 69. And I thought,
4: holy mackerel, I didn't know you'd been here that long. What brought you to Mendocino? Skip Batten. Skip Batten moved out of um, Laurel Canyon and moved to Comchey. Not Comchi, I'm sorry, moved to Navarro and bought a place right on the river there. And uh, I was going through a divorce, and he said, Gene, you ought to come up and look at this place up here. I was looking to get out of L.A. I hated living in L.A. Mm-hmm. and being a country boy. and I So I drove up, looked at his place, went to Comchi, looked at a place there, came to the coast, talked with a guy who showed me uh, the place next door here. Bought it, drove to my dad's, who was living in um, Butte County over here at that point. Oh, yeah. Went there, drove back down to Los Angeles, got on a plane, went to Europe for 10 weeks, toured, came back, loaded the few things that I had in a trailer, came up here, and I could not find my house. I had to go (laughs) find the the realtor to show me where I lived and uh, been here ever since. Yeah. So at this piece of land. Well, this one right next door that belongs to my Mm ex-wife, Camille, Mm -hmm. who we're still friends. Yeah. And uh, then I bought this place here, uh, the acre that we're sitting on right here, which we've added to, but I bought it. It was bare. Well, it wasn't bare. It was full of, you couldn't walk through it. There was trees everywhere, The, uh, the pygmy trees and whatnot and scrub and all. But I bought, they wanted... Thirty-five hundred dollars for this piece of property, and I paid thirty-two hundred dollars for it.
1: Yeah, you were hard driving a hard bargain. You know it. Yeah. You see, this
4: is the thing about Gene. You don't mess
1: with these (laughs) desert folk. You know, I mean. Well, my (laughs) dad was a horse trader, so So it runs in the family. That's good. Um, You know, I know you've uh, you've you've mentioned all all kinds of uh, musicians that you've worked with, and that's been ongoing. I uh, I you know, just looking in the bio, you've played with Vassar Clements, Arlo Guthrie, and uh you've also done a lot of music on your own with various people. Uh you the Gene Parsons trio, Parsons Green, and lots of local people. Um uh any other stories you're you dying to tell us about some of the folks you've worked with?
4: Gosh. I actually recorded with Malvina Reynolds. Oh yeah. So I- she did a little boxes and made of Tiki tack. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never got to meet her, but I overdubbed Alex Hasseloff of uh, the Limelighters oh, yeah. was producing her, mm-hmm. and uh, I I put banjo and guitar and drums and bass and I don't know on all she had just done all the basic tracks with her guitar, yeah, and I went and overdubbed it. and that was fun. I I missed not getting to see her though and meet her. Phil Oaks, Phil Oaks was oh a yeah, real, sure. really had fun with him. Yeah, look
1: outside and, your window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I liked the, I also was a big fan, in, in that era, of course, I would have been watching Hootenanny on television oh, or something yeah. like that. I was a big fan of the Limelighters and the Kingston Trio mm-hmm. and a lot of those bands growing up, you know, a lot of those groups growing up. Uh, a huge fan of the
4: Lime. I love Glenn Yarborough's voice. Definitely. Yeah. He mm-hmm. came and he played here one time at uh, Crown, not at, at Cotton. I'll be darned. Many yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. He had a beautiful voice. Yep.
1: Ken, do you remember Glenn Yarborough? Yes.
4: Yeah, I do. yeah.
1: He, he had was Ken Ken Kraus is here recording with us. So um, I yeah. also was very
0: fond of Phil Oaks and uh, uh, the the uh, I saw him play at a demonstration in Washington D.C. for the moratorium against the war, and uh, he he was amazing. He was just a really uh, he should have been a, a bigger uh, star or whatever. He should have had been better known. Let's put it
4: that Phil, way. Uh, Phil Oakes, definitely underrated and, and a, a great songwriter. Yes. Yeah. And a good performer. Yes. A tortured soul. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A fortunate tragic end to yeah. his life. Cause yeah.
0: He had been injured uh, in a, I think it was in Africa or something. He got his vocal cords working. Oh. And they hit him in the throat. And oh. he never was able to get the range he had before. It was really, mm. you know, it really preyed on him. But.
4: You need a microphone, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just talk about it. <laughs> yeah. well, no, thank you. That, that, when you said yeah. that,
0: I was like, yes, somebody mentioned Phillips because he's yeah. he oh, is yeah. undervalued. A really nice man. Yes. He was really
3: a sweetheart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very
0: dedicated uh, activist. Yep.
3: Well. Yeah.
1: And Gene, Gene is also an activist. You've been involved with all kinds of stuff. Uh, I know when you were playing with uh, Parsons Green, you guys did a lot of green work. Um, we, Tracy and I actually opened for you guys a couple of times. This would probably be Crown Hall and stuff. Mm -hmm. I I recall that. Yeah. yeah, We did Enviro type shows together and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just happened to be wearing a Green New Deal t-shirt today and Gene commented on I was admiring
4: it there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'm not going to make it out of the shop with this (laughs) 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 t-shirt. So. I got to ask you now about the story of the string bender, because we are sitting in Gene Parsons' metal shop, um, uh, machine shop, and Gene is the uh, inventor of the string bender, which is a famous uh, device that he developed for Clarence White. And can you tell this story, because it is a fascinating story, about Clarence asking you about,
4: can you do this for me? Well... Clarence was one of the innovators of a little lick on the Telecaster guitar where he would chime the B string or the E string, the high E string, and then he would pull it over the nut, behind the nut where, where the tuning pegs are, and bring it up a full tone like a pedal steel guitar. And uh, we were doing a session with the Gosden brothers, and he asked me, he says, You know what, Gene, I wish I had a third hand. And I said, What do you mean? He says, "I want to do that lick, that the nut. I want to do it at the second and third position up the neck." I said, "Well, I'll be your third hand. Let's try it." And so I know what you're doing there. Chime it, and I'll pull the string. And so he, you know, held the 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 position on the neck, and I and he chimed with his right hand, and I pulled. Him. We heard the sound. We didn't use it on the recording. We went, "Ooh, that's a really cool sound. That's really cool." So. He says, well, Gene, you're a mechanic. You're a machinist. Well, make me something that'll, that'll do that. And I said, it's easy. We'll get Sneaky Pete to give us some steel guitar parts, and we'll get some cables and put some foot pedals down on the floor. And he's went, no, 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 wait, wait. He says, I don't want to play the pedal steel guitar. I want it all to go in the guitar. I want to be able to put the guitar in the case. I don't want to take my hands out of their stance. Think of something. Well, there was a guy in San Diego... That you you'll see people uh do a volume swell with their little finger on the on the uh, volume knob on their guitar where they make it swell like a pedal steel guitar, and he was doing that with his shoulder strap on a uh he had a lever attached to the attenuator mm-hmm. for to the volume attenuator so he and it was spring loaded and he'd push the neck down and I went ah there we use the shoulder strap and so I Got sneaky Pete to give me a bunch of parts off a of steel guitar that he had there, and uh, I drew up all the the plans and showed Clarence. And I, he said, "Oh, I'm going to have to get another guitar to, while you're working on it," which he did. And then he offered up his old telly to the string bender god, and I took it. And the first thing I had to do was cut a an inch and a quarter, inch and an eighth square out of the body, uh, not. That's the old style. These are all the new style, but that the, one, the original one was where I was incorporating these very big steel guitar mechanisms into this poor little Telecaster. So I cut this piece of inch and an eighth square out and uh, went to have coffee with them. We had coffee every morning, and I went over and I slung this little sunburst, uh, finished square of wood over to him. And he went, oh boy. He said, we're past the point of no return, aren't we? I said, yep, we are. He said, I hope you know what you're doing. I says, yeah, I hope I know what I'm doing too. But it worked with a little tweaking. It worked really well. And he figured out a way to use it. He invented the way to play it, yeah. which Marty Stewart and a lot of people use now. Marty's got the, the original guitar that I built back in 67, And uh, he plays it like it should be played. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have to say, that one line, and you know, on such moments, uh, we go back in time and and look at changes in history. On such moments as Clarence White going, you're a mechanic, figure it out. (laughs) I just love that because there's a moment there when Gene Parsons goes, Okay, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and that particular moment it changes musical history in a way, you know.
4: Well, I think it. You know, it's it's interesting. It's just happenstance. It's uh, luck. It's uh, situations that arise, and you just happen to be at the right place at the right time.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: And you also got to figure it out though. Now,
1: yeah, I, I got to point out to you in terms of like you know inventions because you got an inventive mind. My grandpa. Uh, mother's father worked in the Mare Island Naval Shipyard Ooh, for years. Yeah, and um, he was a South Dakota farm boy. Spoke German as a first language, and then you know managed to get into the shipyard. He was an electrician, and while he was working there, they were always dropping screws. And dropping screws in submarine parts and stuff like that. He's one of the inventors of one of those things. It's a little grabber thing where you push the top, and it, it, the, the little devices
4: come out. And I've grab got it. one in my toolbox. Yeah, yeah.
1: Pappy Heeb, my great grand, my grandpa George Heeb, was one of the inventors of that. He oh, got I love a it. twenty-five dollar check from the government and a certificate. He ended up inventing three other devices for the United States Navy and always got twenty five bucks and a gift certificate. How lucky. Yeah, he got it you know, got written up, but that was about it. And you know, you're in the wrong place at the right time, and his in his particular thing no. he's working for the Navy. But that particular invention's pretty cool.
4: Oh, it's way cool. And yeah. it has gotten me out of a lot of bad situations. What do you call it, that particular thing? Oh gosh. Uh the grabber,
1: the grabber. Yeah. I was thinking myself. I was thinking the nut grabber.
4: Yeah. Although that brings up some major quirky, quirky responses there. My dad used to walk. Kids would come in the shop, and he'd have a big crescent wrench, and he says, shall we tighten your nuts."
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, yeah. Now the string bender, as you mentioned, we have a whole bunch of guitar bodies up here. Presumably, do you work now on um, getting an order from somebody, and then do they send
4: you a guitar body, and then you or do you build it? They, uh, I do both. Uh, mostly, these guitars that you see here are mostly uh, customers' guitars that were sent to me to put string benders. They send, bless their hearts, they send me their guitar with a check in the case. And they wait for six to eight weeks while I, you know, do the the operation on their guitar. So it's kept us in pretty good stead here for, um, well, for 50 years.
1: Yeah. 50 years you've been
4: doing it. I know. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. 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 Well,
1: it is amazing because, uh, I mean, it's something that not everybody knows about, but you've been doing it for 50 years. I have to say for our Snap Sessions listeners, he has a bunch of guitars, looks like about a dozen here, where he uh, bores out a section, and I guess that's a well, it's very specifically done, uh, and then he fits in the string bender mm-hmm. there into the guitar body. Mm-hmm. And um, I was I was curious. It, it was would it be possible for you to demonstrate what a what a what a chord sounds like with or without a string bender?
4: I can probably do that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I was wondering would that be something, Ken? We could we could maybe pause or something and and gene could demo that you you want to do that at the end of the we could do that at the end sure sure we can do that at the end yeah i would i would very much i would very much like to see that um uh because i think it's it would be really great now i was thinking too it might be fun if you could point out some stuff about how you work in the machine shop we have we're sitting here in the machine shop and it looks like a
4: metal shop except kind of crowded I mean, you know, um, it's really crowded and I I even got rid of right here where we're sitting. I had a milling machine that I gave to um, a local luthier, Morgan Daniel, because I wasn't using it so much and he needed it and I needed the room. Yeah, I considered building uh, onto the shop, but then I would just fill that up too, you know, and I I don't want to get too big. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's crowded. Yeah, and and you're looking at Gene Parsons. I'm a Victorian that's trapped in the 21st century, and none of these machines are numerical control. They're all ancient machines, except for this one's a fairly new machine. Yeah. Uh, but like that 1928 South Bend metal lathe there and a 1905 American lathe, and these two uh, Atlas lathes are probably from the late 30s, early 40s. You know, I just, uh, I, I just like, to do it
1: all by hand. You know, I found that in some of the research I was doing, you talked about, um, and I love the fact that you knew this, you talked about a band, you had rebuilt some banjos from Great Britain. hmm And um, somehow they fell into your hands and you started working on them and then you related some interesting facts. You said you didn't realize it, but once you started looking it up, you found out there had been a hundred makers of banjos in England or in Britain about uh, 100-plus years ago.
4: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah,
1: it was fascinating to me. And then you had started rebuilding these banjos. So that level of knowledge of the instrument and of instrument making, and um, it's really phenomenal. I mean, you... Get into it.
4: Well, it, it's, uh, it's not rocket science. It's all just, you know, basic stuff, you know, common sense stuff. But it does take a little finesse and a little experience. I mean, I'm constantly making mistakes and learning every day, you know, so. Yeah. You know, you say it's not rocket science,
1: but without guys like you, there wouldn't be no rockets. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and there certainly wouldn't be any music on the rocket ship to listen to. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because here we're talking to a guy who's you know had a great music career, who's toured with all kinds of big-name bands, etc., but is also very knowledgeable about nuts and bolts and inventing. And as I've, I mentioned about my grandpa, I've always been super impressed by people who can solve problems, invention problems. And whenever people underestimate um, you know, the sort of the crafts part of life. It really
4: bothers me. Well, you're really getting into an area that is one of my pet peeves, and that's that they've taken the manual arts out of the school system in America. And this leaves an awful lot, I think the lion's share of kids, kind of in the lurch because... They don't even realize they want to be doing things with their hands. They're not academics. They're not going to do well until they learn that they need to to manifest life with their hands. And to have manual arts not be part of our education system is is a a real detriment to, to this society, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you say that. Number one, I'm a firm believer
1: in exactly what you say. We need metal shops and wood shops and the like. Francis Rutherford, who we've also interviewed for this show, mm-hmm. you are the second person to mention the word luthier in a Snap Sessions interview because Francis mentioned luthier. And at the time we were interviewing him last fall, I didn't know what a luthier was. And I felt like a knucklehead not knowing, but here you are now because Francis has educated us on it. You're mentioning it, and I actually know somebody who builds stringed instruments mm-hmm. and or mm-hmm. fixes violins and guitars right. and so forth. Right. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm this is just the fact that you have this thing and he also has a bunch of looks like um, practical manuals for uh, working on instruments and metal shoppy stuff, or is that something else?
4: Well, yeah, um, actually, a lot of those up there are, um, I'm a steam, a Victorian trapped in the 21st century, and a steam power nut. And uh, so I've got a whole lot of manuals that are ancient about steam engineering and, uh, and the old methods of machining and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've got quite a book collection. I've been trying to thin it out because it kind of overwhelmed me. Uh, but yeah, I collect old books on, on Victorian engineering.
1: Yeah, and um, apropos that, I, I got to ask too, you had, on one of the videos I was watching, you had built a, a
4: steam whistles. Uh-huh. You actually, you actually make them here. You, you fabricate do. them. Yes, I do, and boilers and steam engines. Tell us a little bit about that too. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, as a kid in the desert, we were about 40 miles from the Southern Pacific line there, and we'd hear the cab Ford Malleys coming through there. You could hear the whistles on a a cold, still day. You could hear them 40 miles away. And my dad would take me down. My grandma lived in Beaumont uh, there, and uh, we'd go, and I'd go down to the train depot and watch them go through and take water and whatnot. And it it did something to me. Those steam engines, you know, poor kids these days, they don't get to see that kind of stuff. I mean, the closest thing they've got to it is probably the space shuttle, which now we don't have anymore. Anyway, I became a steam nut along with other things, motorcycles and just a a hopeless terminal motorhead. I wanted to build steam whistles and boilers. And so I, I built a shop boiler, a couple of them, and I actually had my shop powered on steam for a while. And someone came and bought the whole system that I built. So I built another one, a smaller one. And I, I have built uh, five chime whistles, three chime whistles, and even have a steam locomotive outside that I build, a uh, one-eighth size steam locomotive. Right that, here on the land? Yeah. Oh, we'll take a look at that yeah. too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, that's fascinating. I, I loved hearing about <laughs> this kind of stuff. And, and and the fact that you've had, you've had, you've had such an interesting life, both in music and in fabrication, I guess you'd say, you know, fabricating things. In a way, if you could, you mentioned about being a Victorian uh, steam nut and so forth. If you could go back in time and be with any particular, um, group of musicians, uh, you know, what might you, what might you be gravitating to? Oh my, to? Yeah.
4: oh my. I might want to go and play with Jimmy Rogers, the sing and break man. Yep. Somebody like
1: that. That would be a great combination of your love for trains and your love of, of country music. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Did you happen to see the Ken Burns uh,
4: documentary about country music? Wasn't that fantastic? I loved it. I His documentaries it. are, he's got a great team around him. They do the best documentaries. They really do. They're fantastic. Yeah. The one on jazz too. Whoa. I learned so much. Yeah. I learned so much. And the one on country
1: music, I've told a couple people, if you only watch one, although it's hard to just say that, (laughs) I would watch episode three, the one about Hank Williams. It's mostly about Hank Williams. Yeah, What a life. At 29 years old, he was gone. Oh, I know it.
4: A whole other album came out after he died. He had that all in the can. Yeah. I actually played with Bud Isaacs, who was his steel player for a while. And Bud actually stayed at my house in Palmdale for a week and played with us. He got me really involved in pedal steel. And he was the inventor of the pedal steel. He was the first one to put pedals on the steel guitar, it was Bud Isaac's God Rest His Soul.
1: I think that might be a Snap Snactions exclusive. Yeah. yeah, we might have gotten Gene to talk about Bud Isaac's. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> Should we do a pause here and then set up for... Um, we could do that. Yeah. Huh? Is there anything else that you uh, would like to ask of Gene? Or? I'm just loving yeah. listening. Uh, this has been you're, great. You're uh.
0: great. You're both a great storyteller and you've got the experience to back it.
4: Yeah, we're well, a great story. Great, you guys are awesome, and it's great fun talking to you. And, and as I said before, a, a real honor. Thank you. Yeah, no,
1: we're we're delighted to have you. I mean, uh, it's I could, you know, I get the feeling we could go around shopping. Three hours later, we'd still be talking. Well, we
4: never got yet. into politics yet. Yeah, that's true. We could we could just do a. Couple there's an in. there's
1: another whole day right. Yeah, there. right. Ooh. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true for sure. Conservatively. And yeah. I don't Ken Ken and I uh, Snap Sessions actually does a fair amount we do a lot of eco stuff on our show and uh we do a fair amount of uh, political stuff. In fact, I have to sort of slow myself down to remind myself, let's do a funny one this
4: month. Ken reminds me.
1: Doug, let's do a funny one this month. You get into, you
4: have to temper the, the message with a little humor. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, <I'm laughs> one when he
0: does something about, you know, oh, the smell was terrible from the coal plant or whatever, and I'll put a fart noise in, you know, <laughs> just to kind of, hey, you know, bring a smile to people. But also, that way, I think, people let their guard down and listen a little bit more to the message. I agree. It makes
4: it much more available to the public at large. I think you're right. We'll get this acoustic tuned up here. Okay.
1: Gene's tuning up his acoustic, and he's going to give us a demo of uh, something he's going to play with an acoustic guitar, and then something he's going to use the string bender on.
4: Well, actually, yeah, what Go I'm going to do, if you if you were playing an A chord, and you wanted to, like that, with a string bender, you can do it like this. You probably heard that sound on the radio, or on your record player. Um, but so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm pushing down on the neck, which Let's the shoulder strap pull a lever up, which is spring loaded. So when I push down on the neck, it pulls that B string up a full tunable note. So that's what a string bender is. There you go. Wow,
1: great. That's great. So, And like I said, he's got here, I'd say there, it looks like the dozen um, ones that he's working on right now. And people send you guitars from all over the world, right?
4: They do. I've gotten guitars from Poland and Japan and goodness gracious, yeah. But mostly American you know, mm-hmm. and, and Canadian and, and English. The, the English really like string benders and they send them to me.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thanks for that. And I got, I got one other thing I have to tease you about. Um, I Are you going to tease me? <laughs> I can't help it. I, I was, uh, I went to see Doctor Strange number two uh, uh, about a week and a half ago.
4: I have to see that. I yeah. heard it's really good.
1: Yeah. Well, I, it's pretty good, yeah. And um, I saw Benedict Cumberbatch. Has eyes that are similar to yours. And I have to tell people who haven't seen Gene's eyes, Gene has these beautiful pale blue eyes that are pretty remarkable. That one particular Best of the Birds album has, uh, with your four, you know, four or five of you are like in profile. And then you get to Gene's eyes, and Gene's eyes, it's a black and white picture, but Gene's eyes stand out as this really kind of pretty blue. And um, I was watching I had just been watching a bunch of videos about you and then I went to see Corp. Poor fella, poor fella. So there's strange Doctor Strange <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, Doctor Strange has Gene Parsons' eyes. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's so I'm watching Yeah, exactly. Well, well they <laughs> wrote
4: that song about me, you know. Cheepers, <laughs> yeah. creepers, where to get those peepers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for just for future reference, I think we ought to keep that in the interview for sure. Yeah. So. Gene Parsons meet Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> well, I,
4: I'm a big fan of his. Boy, what an actor. Holy, oh, yeah, he's actor. great. Oh,
1: he's yeah. really fun. I really enjoyed the One Dr. Strange. my Space. favorite TV shows is still the Sherlock ones. Oh, yeah.
4: Is. Those are great. Definitely. Yeah. How yeah. does he remember all that stuff? Oh, and yeah. rattle I heard an interview with him where uh, uh, Power of the Dog, yeah. he actually stayed in the same clothes and didn't take a yes. shower for like 11 days yes. so that he could actually be... That guy, yeah, and he never yeah. got out of character the whole time. Well,
0: he—he, he, I guess the character is like a chain smoker, He's constantly smoking, and he's not a smoker, but for the part he did, and he got nicotine poisoning three times during the course of
4: filming. I mean, that's freaking dedication, <laughs> that's man! Little, I'll tell you. A little bridge too far. <laughs> he's the real deal. He's a real actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And he's got Gene Parsons' eyes. Just throwing <laughs> that in there. So.
4: Oh, Doug can't <laughs> can't take him anywhere.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. So, well, great. I think we've.
4: Uh, thank you, you guys.
1: Thanks, man, You have been great. I gotta tell you, man. I'm giving you one of those. This anyway, Gene, it I was terrific. I mean, we're we've been so lucky. We've had a lot of really interesting people on, and but having you and having your story, your that you get the the extra kick from Gene Parsons, is the time. <laughs> you know, it's perfect for our show, and uh, it's, it's really great that way. I'm so glad you were here for this, Ken, because mostly it's me. I have a little handheld uh, Zoom thing. What's it called? It's a Zoom, such as a...
0: Just a Zoom portable
1: recorder. It's pretty good, digital. but wow. it's, it wouldn't be as good as Ken. Ken, Ken sets up nice. I wanted this does. to
4: be... You got the good mics out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he does. And he got the
1: good stands, which Gene loves. Hey, hey, there yeah. you go. <laughs> that's great. All right, that's it. Yeah. Thanks to our artists, activists of the show, musician and inventor Gene Parsons. Our production team includes techmeister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krauss, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.
0: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.